Welcome to Essential Ethics and this podcast in our second series of Deciding with Children. Today we're discussing whether deciding with children is a human right. In paediatric practice, decision-making for children gradually shifts from parents making all the decisions for their child in collaboration with the child's doctors to the young person becoming more involved in their own decision-making. This shift is based on an emerging autonomy in the child and brings with it a concurrent need for parents and clinicians alike to step back and listen to the child as the child develops their capacity for holding views about their health care. The fact that medical decisions are self-regarding generates a strong obligation for their views to be heard about what should be done to them. In this podcast, we explore the degree to which considering the views of the child on their medical treatment is a duty, and whether, in fact, it is a human right. I'm John Massey, Clinical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre here at the Royal Children's Hospital. To help us think about whether deciding with children is a human right, we're joined from Belfast by Professor David Archard, who's Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the Queen's University, Belfast, and Chair of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics in the United Kingdom. David is also a lay member of the Children's Ethics Committee at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, London. David, welcome to Essential Ethics. Thank you, John. Good to be with you. I'm also joined by Professor John Tobin, who is Chair in International Human Rights Law in the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Essential Ethics, John. Thanks, John. John, I want to start with you because I think that our audience is probably not that familiar with what rights are. So, John, what is a human right and how did they evolve? So a nice, easy question to start with, John. Thanks for that. So uh, I'll try and keep it simple. I suppose the first thing to acknowledge is that if you ask different people, you get different responses. So a philosopher, a politician, um, or a lawyer have a very different response to this question. For those working in the healthcare sector, I think it's probably easiest to think in this way. You have rights, which we talk about all the time in sort of general discourse. We think about rights and sort of the US Constitution, what's been happening over there. This is around access to abortion and sexual health care. We're talking about human rights as a different idea, um, related but different. And if we think about the history, okay, rather than going back way in time, I'm just going to start back at the end of World War II and take us back to the Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, where the world's nations got together and said, hang on a second, things were very, very bad during the Second World War. We need to have a different vision of how the world should look and what it should do and how we should treat people. And with that, we saw the emergence of the modern day international human rights movement as well. So that's obviously a very short history, but it's important, I think, for our audience to understand that's what we're sort of primarily talking about in most of our conversations in this space now today. How did that evolve? Well, we had the declaration adopted in 48, and since then there's been a number of treaties adopted across a range of areas dealing with a whole range of specialists or discrete cohorts, women, um, people with disabilities, uh, racial groups uh, against torture, et cetera, as well. For our conversation, the most important instrument is the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which was adopted back in 1989. Thanks very much, John. And I think it's good to get to 1989 because we're thinking about deciding with children. And David, I think there's a couple of key articles in the Convention on the Rights of the Child, uh, but I'd be really pleased if you could take us through which of those articles might be helpful when we're considering whether deciding with children might be a human right. Sure. So I think it's important to start by saying that the uh, UNCRC accords uh, a whole suite of rights to all children, wherever they are in the world, and irrespective of their national origin, their race or their gender. So to that extent, it's an extraordinarily important uh, international instrument of law. Um, it's often said that the uh, CRC uh, rights fall into the three P's. Um, so there are protection rights that uh, protect children against certain uh, forms of exploitation, abuse and neglect. There are provision rights that uh, give children access to certain important benefits and goods. And then there are the participation rights, uh, some very familiar ones like right to free association, right to freedom of uh, thought and conscience. Um, but the key articles that you're alluding to are um, 3 and 12. Now, interestingly, 3 doesn't actually accord children a right. It simply says that their uh, best interests in all matters should be a primary consideration for the relevant agencies. 
And then Article 12, which is the really fun one, um, which says that all children who are capable of forming a view shall have the right freely to express that view on matters affecting them, those being, views being given a weight uh, proportionate to their maturity. So those two rights, uh, or two articles, 3 and 12, I think are the key ones for our discussion that we shouldn't forget in the background is the right of children to um, uh, provision of health care and to the highest uh, level, available level of uh, appropriate treatment. Thanks, David. When I was sort of pulling out what I was could see in Article 3, it talked about best interests. It also referred to the parents, and then it does actually make mention of, of, of health, but it seemed to me it slipped slightly away from the child focus and about the, the parents or maybe the state's concept of best interest. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, because if you look at the um, preamble to the CRC, one of the things it says is that it's that the, the family is the unit within which children are raised. So it frequently makes reference to the duties and obligations of parents in respect to children. But uh, the rights have to be protected by all persons, uh, all adults, and clearly it uh, imposes obligations and duties on governments and appropriate agencies. I mean, that you know, may be worked up in what we think of or people talk about family-centred care, but I'm always, you know, very, very careful to call it child and family-centred care because while the child's interests lie within the family, those two are not always uh, fully, uh, fully aligned. And David, in Article 12, it has uh, important words about children capable of forming a view. I think that that's a really important statement around, you know, when should we be involving children or how should we do it? Do you think that's the sort of the key in Article 12? That phrase, capable of forming a view, is one of those great ones that uh, philosophers and uh, lawyers will love to argue exactly what it means and entails. So just just to uh, be provocative, I know there are some who write on children's rights who are very clear that any child from whatever age can express a view. Uh, in other words, it includes infants, and infants can express preferences quite clearly. My own view is that's quite different from expressing a view. Um, and if you look at, for instance, a nice concrete example, some uh, European countries have incorporated the CRC into domestic legislation. So one example I'm familiar with is Norway, and the relevant Children's Act in Norway takes capacity to start at the age of eight. So they understand that article is requiring them to listen to the views of children over the age of eight and has no obligation to listen to children under that age. So it's open to interpretation. Hey, that's a fascinating point because there'll be a few paediatricians listening to this, uh, maybe with their, with their heckles up. And I think uh, tonight we may not be able to answer all the questions, but I think that's going to be a really good uh, talking point to actually think about uh, when does this uh, start? Because you know, personally, I'd be th seeing children really from the age of three being able to indicate sorts of things that might be preferences, perhaps not packaged as high up as values, but things that uh, can be included uh, in the decisions, remembering not necessarily just uh, consent form type decisions, but small parts of what are bigger bigger decisions. The other thing, and I'm going to come to John on this, but the other thing about Article 12 is it seemed to me very judicial. So Article 3 specifically mentions health. Article 12 seems very judicial, should be heard. And uh, if you're rounded up by the police or something in some country that you need to be heard, and obviously today is health. But there's also another important point in 12, John, which is that uh, state parties shall assure what does that mean? Yeah, thanks, John. So we've been discussing this phrase. It's not a French word, shall assure. Um, it's actually a, a very legal term. So if you look at legal treaties closely, the words are selected very carefully. So shall is a mandatory obligation imposed on states. And the idea to assure something is to actually take active measures to ensure that a child who's actually capable of forming that view can express that view. So what we're saying here is that states are required not just to sit back and do business as usual with young people as they were with adults, they're actually required to take special 
special measures to actually create the conditions in which young people can express their views. So this is a different way of thinking about things as well. So that's an additional layer that we haven't had historically. So certainly that's something that applies to adults. We're assumed to have capacity to express our views, but here we're recognising that young people often have difficulties because of adult-centric systems and processes that would otherwise really make it hard for a child to express their views. Here we're saying, no, the positive duty lies with the state and the state's actors. So in this case here, it would be clinicians working with children to take those special measures to enable, to scaffold, to support a young person who's capable of forming a view to express those views as well. John, that's really interesting because I think that's going to segue to where we want to go in a moment about, you know, why are children special, why we Mm. preference them and how we take them into account, uh, which leads us there. But while we're just thinking about rights, I might start with you first, John, because you have that sort of legal background and then perhaps Dave with philosophical background. What sort of do rights add, though, to what might just be a, a, a duty, a good idea? Yeah, Great question, and it's one we can debate for a long time, but I suppose if you keep it pretty simple, in the space of context of health, you think about benevolence, charity, discretion, goodwill, um, ethics of care, all those things that sort of create a moral obligation for us to act in certain ways towards people. When we talk about rights, we're saying there's actually two parts to a right. There's the interest protected, so in this case, the health care of a child, but there's also an obligation to take measures to ensure that interest is realised. So what a right does, it creates a claim. And that's really significant, particularly for groups that maybe marginalised or disempowered. So here we've got an entitlement that states must take measures to secure. And so in theory, what you're saying is there's something that a child, no matter who they might, and this is a point that David make, wherever you might be, whatever nationality, your origin, your sexual orientation, doesn't matter who you are, you have this claim to make on those provisions of power to actually secure that right. So this is why states are resistant to create rights in the case of Australia, our, our either Victorian system or nationally, because it holds those in power to account. It demands actions and seeks to hold them accountable for the, either their ability or their failure to create and, and realise those entitlements. Sounds like it's trying to give us some moral backbone or Correct. back us up about those. David, uh, yeah. do you see it the way John does in terms of what rights might add to our just general obligations? I think John expressed it marvellously. There's actually a very nice uh, piece some years ago by a prominent uh, uh, American philosopher who asks us to imagine a world in which there's a very benign ruler who gives his or her citizens everything they need and want. Um, He's utterly benevolent. Um, What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is it shouldn't be at the discretion of a ruler, uh, be it a state, a government or an individual, that people receive certain forms of treatment. Uh, That should be theirs to claim from uh, the relevant agency or government and hold them to account if they fail to do that. So that's the real importance of a rate. It puts power in the hands of those who are the recipients of the benefits that rights um, uh, outline. So we're putting power in the hands of children. This is fantastic, Mm. uh, David. So because deciding with children, which is our riff, uh, is in the healthcare space. This is what we're thinking about. Obviously, there are decisions elsewhere that, that kids can make decisions. But I'm actually interested, John, whether healthcare, is it actually a human right itself? Mm. Yes. Well, again, it's one of those questions that there'll be various views about the answer. So in the context of sort of the philosophy of human rights, there are many philosophers who will say, no, it's not. It doesn't satisfy the criterion of what rights might be seen to be sort of integral, essential. Um, but there, in the space of international law where I work largely, the answer is very simply yes. Um, so if you look at any of the international human rights instruments, including the Convention on the Rights of the Child, Article 24 says that every child has the right to the highest attainable standard of health. Um, and Keep in mind that every state bar one has ratified that treaty and said we agree with those standards and we accept those standards. So in terms of um, the, the space in which we're working in this country here, y- we can argue that it isn't a right, but the reality is that international recognises it, Australia has accepted that standard, and in fact there's an Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights for Children, which also affirms the right to health for children as well, which exclu- extends not just to healthcare but a whole range of other things that go around um, the enjoyment of the right to the highest sustainable standard of health. I think the audience will find it fascinating that there's even debate mm. as to whether healthcare is is a right. And John, when we're thinking about self-regarding issues, and I think that term is very important in this in this space. Then, as I was alluding to before, people make decisions about all sorts of things, and what clothes they're going to wear, what school, mm. what religion, etc. So these are things we're thinking that children should be involved in making. 
decisions for themselves. But is, is health a bit more important than that? A- and therefore, you know, we might be heading towards deciding with children as a human right because health is a human right and health is really important to children. So there was a, a quote a few years ago by, I think, one of the high commissioners human rights saying the most important right is the right to health. And Now, why? Because if you start to map out its contents, uh, there's not much about our lives that aren't impacted by which our health is not impacted upon. So if you compromise that, then you're compromising the capacity of the person to live a healthy life, which, of course, then affects their ability to do everything else, those sort of autonomy rights you might, whether it's what clothes you wear, what school you go to, what friends you hang out with, where you live, what you do, if your health isn't secure and stable, it's sort of a foundational claim and entitlement. So you can see why the right to health is seen as being one of those sort of critical rights. Um, and I'd argue was central. But of course, in theory, again, we make this claim in international law that all rights are interdependent and indivisible, which means they're all supposed to be in the same level. But the reality is in practice, um, if you compromise a person's health, and particularly a child's health, who are more vulnerable than adults, then you are undermining the ability to enjoy all those other rights that flow from the human rights system as well. Well, folks, you have heard that from a lawyer. John, you're a disgrace to the profession. (laughs) Uh, But uh, here at Essential Ethics at Children's Bioethics Centre, we agree. David, I think that sort of brings us to a point. We've been building up to this about, you know, what's special about children that they need their own rights and the things that we, well, you mentioned the the three Ps. Uh, and it's sort of the way we are sort of conceiving of children. Yeah, no, um, uh, it's a ve- it's a very important question because very frequently, if you if you have discussions about children's rights, you'll find somebody somewhere say, "Yeah, but children are human, so they have all the human rights that are detailed in uh, the the familiar statutes." So why do we have this particular convention that gives uh, children rights? Um, and importantly, it gives children rights that adults don't have. Uh, but it also denies children certain rights that uh, children have. So you don't find the right to vote there. Um, and uh, we'll come back to it. You don't uh, accord to children the fundamental right to make their own choices about how to lead their lives. And that would be, I thought, absolutely basic for adults. But if you look at the preamble, the convention very carefully says children, uh, by reason of physical and immaturity, need special safeguards and care. So it's a long-standing view before even 89 that children are a special category. And in virtue of being dependent, vulnerable, they are in need of uh, special care. Now, I think that raises issues that we may want to circle around when you come to look at how exactly then Article 12 and all the other participation right fits in. But that's why uh, there needs to be a particular convention. Though I just say now, as a philosopher, it raises all kinds of uh, very, very knotty issues about how exactly children uh, differ from adults and why they don't have the same protections that adults have. But there are things that we consider as goods of childhood, aren't they, David? Things that uh, beyond just CRC... Yeah, if you use the term the goods of childhood, this is very much uh, a concept that's entered into uh, contemporary discourse about, certainly in philosophy, about children. Actually, its background is is theories of justice and how you distribute the appropriate goods and benefits across a population. And the thought was, well, most accounts of justice leave out the goods that are a, that are particularly uh, valued to children. Uh, and have to do with the nature of childhood. And here you get things like um, innocence, play, leisure, recreation. And actually, that, that is protected in the uh, CRC. Uh, and it'd be very odd, for instance, to think that adults have a right to leisure. None of us have a right to leisure whatsoever, <laughs> or play, or innocence. Um, but these seem to be the sorts of things we would want children to be able to enjoy. I mean, that sets up, I think, very nicely, David, this sort of special idea about children and how we preference them. But strangely, when we preference them in our society, we have children's hospitals as you know, one of the goals of that. But actually, we often forget them when it comes to deciding and medic- medical decisions. So, John, there are shifting conceptions of childhood, aren't there, over over the years, sort of uh, legal and social, yeah, that exactly. lead us to where we are now. Absolutely. So when I give classes, particularly in the, in the health space, um, I, I try to th- 
get people to think about how we as a society value and view children. I sort of talk about three different models that tend to inform social practice and policy concerning children, and they're very broad, so that, keep that in mind as well. But the idea of a child as property, which is that sort of very instrumentalist view, which you probably see often in the way in which parents engage with their child. So you took the example of, say, corporal punishment smacking a child. Um, many parents in this country think it's fine to smack their children if you ask them why, and say, well, it's my children, don't interfere with me. And that's for me, reflects some sort of proprietary interest in their capacity to control that child in the ways they think appropriate, and not to so the child's having their own independent rights at all. And that obviously was a law said historically. It was literally an exclusive zone for parents, and particularly the dads. Now, the law has thankfully shifted now um, in what it recognises, and it moved then from that very proprietary conception to a welfare-based model. And this is what we see essentially as a contemporary eye of the best interest principle. So children are vulnerable, whereas the state must take measures to ensure they're protected. And that I think still is a dominant paradigm in which most of our policies involving children sort of operate. We as adults are the experts. We've got obligations, moral obligations to assist them because of their vulnerability as well. But that has a real problem, the dark side is what um, John Eckler talks about as well, whereby if you think about, not many examples are defined, but the stolen generation's the best. The law says it's in a child's best interest to have that child removed from their parents because for some bizarre reason, I thought that would be better if the child's upbringing. We know that was very deeply harmful and, and that impact remains as well. So the welfare model clearly is a shift, but it has limitations. And the biggest one is the child is seen, but not heard at all. So we say, okay, well, how does a rights-based approach differ? It still retains that Article 3 best interest principle. This is really important to acknowledge. So we recognise that vulnerability that grounds those special interests that David talked about. But then it says, hang on a second, there's this capacity of evolving autonomy that also is starting to emerge. And we as a state, as a society, have to start thinking about how we see the child, not as being just a vulnerable person into protection, but as actually a rights holder. And that comes then with a recognition of both vulnerability on the one side, but also evolving capacity, agency, lived experience, expertise, which we have an obligation to actually hear and take into account when we decide with them. So, and that's fascinating, Ray, so many points. And, you, the, the, you know, one of them uh, for me there is a sort of childhood of some sort of predicament to be survived and and maybe it's a, and you know the, the start of the rights which are sort of negative rights it's sort of protecting them from from harm but I think you know where we are as pediatricians and we're thinking about deciding with children we're actually trying to take that obligation further to doing good things and or if we need to protect or make the environment I think that's where the shallow shore potentially comes in to make that environment. David, um, John mentioned the word um, autonomy and, of course, you know, children have been uh, excluded on the basis of their irrationality, uh, inability to form views that are meaningful and that's sort of, I think Aristotle, Kant, Mill all, all, all do that and I think though at the same time they all set a bar pretty high that uh, maybe even three of us wouldn't meet. I certainly probably wouldn't, perhaps I shouldn't speak for you. So... Yeah, while respect for autonomy is important bioethical principle in paediatrics, we try and rephrase that as respect for the child. And I think, you know, when we do that, we start to take into this notion there's a lot more to the child and we're respecting them now as a young person and as a becoming later on. Um, how do you see that? I mean, do you see autonomy is, and respect for the child as, as just a bioethical principle or really that is starting to get where we want to be and thinking of it uh, more as a right? I, I think there's an awful lot in, in, in what you've asked there and in what uh, John previously said. So let me just say that I think, uh, and let, let, you know, I think we can have some, some provocation and dissent here. If you talk to people who are defenders of the CRC, they'll say there's absolutely no tension or conflict whatsoever between any of the articles. They're all perfectly uh, applicable. There's always seemed to be that Article 3 and 12 sit in odd tension one with, with one another, because on the one hand, Article 3 demands of us that we promote the best interests or the welfare of the child. But Article 12 asks us to um, take account of what the child, him or herself, wants. And it does seem to me they pretty obviously can come into conflict and they will do in medical contexts where clinicians and parents think something is best for the child and the child expresses a view to the contrary. How then do you reconcile those two principles? Now, I think the odd thing here for me as a philosopher is, and I think I mentioned this you in a prior discussion, uh, John, um, whenever I used to teach the principle of autonomy and consent to my students, I'd look out at a group of 18 and 19 year olds and say, 
Given what you've just been telling me about the previous night, how on earth do I respect your right to make sensible, prudent choices? Because clearly you're incapable of leading your life in any kind of sensible or wise way. And yet, as far as the law is concerned, and as far as philosophy is concerned, it's up to you what you do, so long as you don't hurt anybody else. On the other hand, those below the requisite age, whether it's 16, 17 or 18, children, then minors, we say of you, you can't make choices about what you want to happen to you or how you want to lead your life. However, we will listen to you. <laughs> and then the interesting question is, well, what exactly does that mean? If we're not according a child the, uh, the autonomy to make choices, um, what does it mean to listen to the child and give those views when they're expressed a certain kind of way. So just, just to, as it were, to set it up provocatively, a doctor does not say to a 35-year-old person, what are your views about what you want to happen next? Having listened to you, I'll then weigh them accordingly and make a decision as to what I think is best. You don't do that with adults because adults have a fundamental right to make their own medical choices so long as we hold them capable. In the case of children, that's not the case. And therefore, it's really fascinating what it is we're doing when, as it were, we say, now tell us what you want to happen because it won't necessarily happen, but we'll give it a wait. I think, David, that uh, puts it very nicely. And I think as a clinician, David, I think we know that you can't always do what the child wants. And I think that what we're doing when we ask for involvement, but I think deciding with children is more than just decision-making involvement. We're taking it a bit further, but I think we're respecting the child as a person. We're canvassing their views. We have to be careful we don't ask for something we can't give. And uh, But I think if you don't ask, you don't know. And so I think involving the child working out what it is, is their preference. And perhaps the older they are, that preference starts to look more like a value that could be long held and sustained. And then you're right, it may not be possible to include that in something that is for their best interest thinking. We're asking for now because you're a being now. And we're perhaps going against that because you're a becoming and we're actually answerable to you as a 35-year-old person who might say, what? You let me do that <laughs> when I was a child. What were you thinking? And that then may mean that we need to uh, apologise or acknowledge that we're going against the wishes. But if you don't ask, then I think we run the risk of just trampling all over them. And that's where I think packaging up as respect for the child perhaps is a, a language and an idea that accommodates uh, what we're trying to do. Yeah, I, th I think that's really helpful. I think you could start to unpack the different elements you're, you're making reference to. I mean, first of all, go back to something John said earlier, which I think is really important. You actually have got to assure to the child the opportunity to express their views. So in the first instance, you've got to make provision for a child to be able to say what it is they, they want to happen. You've got to give them an appropriate opportunity to say it. So you, you're going to have to talk about putting in place institutions and practices and frameworks that allow the child to be confident, to be able to understand, to then express a view. And then at the next stage, you've got to be assured that what you're doing is giving those views appropriate respect. Um, and I suppose the interesting question is what exactly that means. Um, my own view is that uh, what we're not doing is listening to the child just so that we can form a better view of what is in fact in its best interests. I mean, that is a certain view that I've heard defended. So why do we listen to the child? Well, because we get a better view of what actually is in their best interests. No, I think you listen to the child because they are a source of views about what matters to them. They are uniquely placed to tell us what is uh, going on and what they want to happen. That's what you have to respect, them as a source of views, not simply as a source of, as it were, useful information for us to make a better decision. It's interesting because we've used you know, the terms autonomy and we've used best interests and, of course, very broadly respect for the child and considering the respect or if it's appropriate autonomy sort of bundles up in their best interests. But I think in some ways... Um, you know, the, the, certainly Article 3 just talks about best interests and I think then that's, you know, often determined by someone by someone else. But, John, we've got some cases to road test in a moment, but it does just bring us to this concern that some of us in bioethics have that 
by framing things as rights, you can end up with competing rights. And so there's the child's view if we've canvassed it and we're thinking there's some rights buried in there and there's a parent's view as to how they want to bring up their children or what they want to do. Uh, and then all of a sudden we've got these two really hard stops up against each other. How do we resolve that? Yeah, so it's a really important question. I think there's an, a sort of assumption that rights are absolutes and therefore in, in the ethical circles you don't want to talk about rights because it creates a conundrum you can't resolve. The reality is, in fact, it is quite reconcilable and the Convention actually has the tools within it to balance those competing interests, duties, obligations. And Article 5 we haven't mentioned yet, but it's a really important part of the conversation. So Article 5 actually says that states must respect the rights and duties of parents Okay, so both those things included there, to provide direction and guidance to children consistent with a child's evolving capacities. So what that's saying is that parents have got actually rights and duties with respect to their children, and what they are is going to be something we can talk about as well, and that's derived from cultural practices, and that's actually referred to explicitly as well. Um, So that's where you bring a lot of ethical debate around what they actually look like in practice. But the way in which to exercise those is very conditioned and directed towards actually guiding and supporting the child to realise their rights under the convention, as opposed to the old models of I can do what I like because I'm a father of my four children and they'll do what I say. And then you put in the evolving capacities and you start to say, okay, there's a point now where when a child gets to the point where their capacity is equivalent to that required of an adult, then at that point, how can you legally or morally justify intervention in a way which would be contrary to that child's express wishes? So I'm a bit different on David around best interests. My view is that, in fact, Article 12 must inform how we determine a child's best interests, and it is a factor to take into account. Um, it sort of informs that practice early on, but at some point in time, there'll be a point where the child's insights at the same threshold that would be required for any adult with respect to a practice and procedure. And so legally and morally, I'd say, well, on what basis can you justify interventions that may be contrary to a child's expressed views or those views reach a threshold for competency and therefore align with that child's best interests as well? So there's a tension there, but the convention gives us the tools to mediate that tension as well. And so it does mean sometimes that parents have to be told, sorry, and this happens regularly in cases before the courts, your right ends now because the child's got to the point where they can decide to undertake that procedure. There's a very powerful case written in South Africa around the right to access abortion. It's a common theme around the world, as you know from Gillick. Um, and, and you see the court saying this. We respect parents. We want to maintain that family relationship. But there's a point where the parents can no longer exercise control over the child any further. So contentious as to where that point would be drawn, but certainly there's a, a procedure, which I want to put this a procedure and a process to follow to reconcile that tension you've talked about, John. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as I listened to you talk, it seemed very much that, that was a Gillick. Mm. Uh, and interesting that they sort of came out around the same time, I think. Very uh, similar times, yep. yep. Very yep. similar time. But I'd hate to say that Gillick or Mature Minor does does all the work, but I think there's some important principles there. So, David, um, the other day I was seeing a 13-year-old boy and I thought he should have the influenza vaccine. His mother didn't want him to have the influenza vaccine. He'd had most of his other childhood vaccines. He hadn't had a COVID vaccine. She was quite adamant, no, no influenza vaccine. Said to the boy who was uh, intellectually normal, um, and that's important with Duchenne because some of the boys uh, struggle, but I said, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, actually, I'd like to have it. I don't want to get influenza. What do I do? I'm coming to you now, David, because you're on the Clinical Ethics <laughs> Committee at the Great. I think it's Great. Is it in just oh, is, Orm- it? is it in Ormond Street, or is, it is <laughs> which is, and then it's a Great Hospital, or is it Great Ormond Street? Uh, but anywhere with Great in it is good marketing. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a it's a Great Hospital and a Great Street. Um, you, you're, the, the dilemma you face there is a nice one, and and, and uh, I think it touches nicely on some of the comments John was making there about parental rights and um, parental duties. I have to say, what's interesting in the UK Children Act, there's no mention of children's uh, parental rights. It simply talks about responsibilities, and that was an interesting shift from a sort of 19th century conception of the parent as an absolute uh, sovereign over their own offspring. Now they thought of as having fundamental duties towards their children. And I agree with John that there comes a point where you're going to have to say whether it's said finally in a court 
yeah, you are the legal guardian of this child, but you are not now going to determine what uh, happens next because what is in the best interest of the child is not what you yourself think ought to be done. The case of vaccination is or inoculation is interesting just because in most cases of medical treatment that you want to talk about, we're, we're, these are ones where the um, risks and benefits are uniquely the patient's. Um, in the case of vaccination and inoculation, we're talking about public goods. So uh, we all know that uh, in order to be effective, certain vaccines have to um, extend to a certain percentage of the population. And that became very pressing in the UK over, over COVID pandemic and whether in fact there should be compulsory uh, vaccines. It's a standard move incidentally in the UK to deny children access to schools. Um, if they aren't in receipt of the appropriate vaccine. So that seems to me an interesting public health issue, which is it, which is distinct from the kind of standard bilateral issue where a doctor is dealing with in front of them a particular um, patient and the risks and benefits are exclusive to that patient or child. So we still haven't got, David. Uh, what, what do I, uh, what do I say? Do I, do I say, uh, if you want it, go down to the vaccine centre and, and, and get it? Uh, or do I say, well, look, your mum doesn't want you to have it and we just have to uh, sit by sit by that? No, it's a choice to be made by if, uh, what you would judge to be a competent child who understands fully what's involved. Ahead they go. I think it's interesting, and John may want to comment on this, there's an interesting distinction that's made in case law between um, those circumstances where a child wants a form of treatment and those cases where the child doesn't want a form of treatment. And, and sometimes the law has seen there's, an, there's a kind of asymmetry there. Here's a case in which uh, the child wants something that perhaps all reasonable persons would judge is in their best interests and they're quite right to want it. They're not refusing what we all think is a, is, is a treatment in their best interests. So if we deem them to be a competent child, risk the wrath of the child and advise them to go get it. So it is a self-regarding decision. They're wearing, um, well, they're wearing the concept of, or wearing the possibility of getting influenza. They have a reaction to it. I think this is always interesting in this space is you know, whose responsibility is it to, to manage it? Because I know the parents will feel bad uh, in that, even when the child's requesting it. Can, can I just add as well? I mean, I, I think I agree entirely with David in terms of the ethical obligation and legal obligation is to ensure the child has access to healthcare when they're appropriate and competent to do so. But as a system, we have to recognise that may create an anxiety between that child and that parent. So there's an obligation then for us to be preventative in terms of educating parents about these issues so that we try and minimise those incidents where there is a conflict. And then I think there's an obligation to manage it when it occurs as well, both at the time and also follow up, because you'd hate to think that the child leaves that. And I've actually heard of situations where the parents have been ostracised the child um, for, for taking the vaccination. So that's a harm as well. So there's an extra extra layer to the conversation we have to think about as well, which I think is not easy, but we can't ignore it. We're thinking, and the right space more would say that relationship with the parent is also important, you know, um, and the mental health that goes with ostracisation or trauma that might go from a parent who decides to not sort of respond effectively. In terms of your point, though, about if something goes wrong, I, I, I think that's, again, that's part of the, the, the information you're giving to a young person about the risks involved. And if you assess that they are fully aware of those possibilities and that, then you assume responsibility, as you would as a healthcare provider, to take care of that if something goes wrong, then that's an issue that I think is just sadly part of all medical care. But that, that, that broader question around the relationship with the child, I think, is an important consideration to think about as well. Yeah. And I think that that is, in, and I think in this space, very important. There can be fallout. It can be very significant because they're up and up against belief, belief systems, strong beliefs, which yeah. are strong uh, in that space. So uh, that's a good point. I was lucky uh, in that situation that uh, mother was very amenable, very... Uh, quite happy for the young man to make his decision. And in fact, it was a learning point, uh, which I was really pleased with, about shifting the sort of decision-making, allowing the boy to be in, involved in um, the decision. So David, you mentioned about that asymmetry, which is a really useful word of deciding or wanting something or deciding against something. So here's a hypothetical, a 12-year-old girl with a relapsed uh, leukaemia who has a limited chance of success. 
So let's say 10% of recovery from that. But it means arduous chemotherapy, bone marrow transplant. And she's had a rugged road to get here. Been going over a few years, just got off the hook and then it's relapsed. And she says, no, it's too much. I don't want any more chemotherapy. And her parents say, we've got to treat and take that 10%. How do we approach this? Well, we know, and, and John will know, that there are some pretty celebrated post-Gillick uh, cases in the UK where, let's say, a 14, 15-year-old has indeed refused uh, life-preserving treatment, uh, in one famous case, um, a heart transplant, and did say something like your uh, imagined or real case, I, I've had enough. Um, it's, it's a really tough regimen you've subjected to me. I don't want any more treatment and I don't want anybody else's heart in my body. I don't want the transplant. And the court deemed her Gillick incompetent and said, well, uh, she didn't really understand what was at, what was at stake. Um, one of the problems is how high we raise the bar of capacity here. Um, because what we tend to do with 15-year-olds that we wouldn't do with a 25-year-old is say, you really have to understand every single minute detail of what is involved. You've got to appreciate the significance here. We're talking about life-saving treatment. I don't think you understand that. And whenever I teach that, I don't know what John does. I just tell me a 25-year-old, tell me an 18-year-old who has any appreciation of the enormity of some of the decisions that you're, you're regularly taking and are allowed to do so. So I think we have to be very careful about where we set the bar here. Um, so these are very difficult uh, decisions. And bear in mind as well the other thought, which one English judge did say is, there are certain forms of treatment you simply can't impose on anybody. I mean, just think of the enormous costs of trying to impose on a patient the treatment you think is in their best interest. It's going to be counterproductive and it's going to have awful outcomes. So it seems to me there's a lot going to go on in your thinking about this this particular case. Um, all I want to note at this point is that Gillick differs from Article 12. Um, and importantly, Gillick is about seeing whether minors reach a certain threshold of competence. Once they reach it, they're for all intents and purposes to be treated as if they were adult. Article 12 says, no, what you've got to do is a very difficult balancing act of the views and best interests. So you'd have to think what your preferred um, way into this was, John. I'm going to duck for a moment, John Tobin. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I mean, I agree with everything David said as well. There's there a case a couple of years ago in the New South Wales jurisdiction, it was a 17-year-old boy, and he was found to be competent. And the court still said, I recognise your competency, but the sanctity of, sanctity of life demands that I still require you to take this treatment. And that's the classic dilemma where clearly <laughs> I've got great issues with that, that's resolved. You've got, to go to David's point, um, if that person was 18, we wouldn't, bad and either, but for some reason we put a high threshold. In fact, we ignore the threshold. <laughs> we just override the threshold. But I also agree with Dave that when it's a younger child, 12, 13, 14, we try and create these barriers that in fact may not be there in practice. This is the where, this is the, I think, where the sort of the um, rub hits the road for us as adults, because this is where it really challenges us. We want to be able to maintain life. We want to make sure that the child is able to get to the point where they aren't vulnerable. And we make assumptions about capacity because we were young on as well, and we know we made decisions that probably weren't as informed as they could be as well. But but this is the challenge, right? So a rights-based approach says we've got to reflect on that and try and distance ourselves from our own prejudices and assumptions and apply a test which is fair and reasonable to these situations here as well. So the 12-year-old, as you point out, and in many cases it is the case, that their lived experience is so different because of 12 years of invasive treatment, enough is enough. So do we as a society say, no, we're going to force you to endure more pain and suffering because it makes us feel better? Now, this is a thing that I find is really difficult to reconcile. And the more I think, and so again, I should add, you know, your own ethical upbringing, Catholic upbringing, life, it sort of starts from you must always protect it. But gee whiz, am I really going to inflict that pain on a young person because it makes me feel better about my sense of what life should look like as well? And I think this is what we've got to be challenging ourselves to con consider as a profession, as a practice. Um, and keep in mind that in places like the Netherlands, they actually allow for active euthanasia for young people. 
that's a staggering concept, isn't it? In Australia, we didn't even countenance in Victoria. We've got assisted um, assisted dying legislation, but there was no conversation about under 18s being part of that debate at all. Other jurisdictions actually allow for it, with appropriate medical oversight, of course, as well. So there's really complex issues in here, moral and legal, but I think the important point is for us to keep thinking about, well, how can we justify our actions? What's our moral and legal justification, if any at all, for that intervention? And whose interest are we actually serving? Which is a real challenge. I think if I can, I just want to, lest we lose sight of this point, and and, and John, you've touched on it, and John, you, you, uh, uh, quoted me talking about the asymmetry. And this really is quite important. So if you're dealing with a, a 14-year-old, say, brought up by Jehovah's Witnesses, who's, who, um, whose parents don't want him to have a, a life-preserving uh, transfusion, and he says, I want it, I think the courts are much more amenable to siding with the child um, because they're going for a treatment that actually not just is in their best interest but saves their life. I think the courts, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in the UK judges have hated the idea that they're going to find against life. So in these kind of cases where where a child is, deemed, as John said, deemed confident, but nevertheless is making a choice not to continue living, the courts have been really, really unhappy about finding in favour of the child. And that asymmetry is one that's very odd. And I know that there are well-known bioethicists who just throw their hands up and say, it's ludicrous, this asymmetry. You can choose for or against uh, life-saving treatment. If you're competent for one, you're competent for the other. But in reality, in practice, the courts have found that very, very difficult. And I think doctors find it very difficult because they do see themselves as saving and preserving life. So when someone chooses against that, they're less, less, far less willing to get, to go with the patient, whoever it is. I mean, I think you're right, David, in terms of courts leaning towards saving life, although... You know, this doctor isn't about saving life. This doctor is about making life better. Uh, and that's how I start. And I think with that philosophy, a lot of the time it helps. I think, you know, for our listeners, I think the Jehovah's Witness issue and transfusions has been well well sorted right up to 317 and 364 days. If the 17-year-old doesn't want a life-saving blood transfusion, well, they're going to get it. Um, and that's because it's a single event easy to administer and go to save their life. And we also know down the track at least a third or so of people brought up as Jehovah's Witnesses don't stay there. So we think of uh, how people might change. But I think in terms of this chemotherapy and bone marrow transplant, they also come down to some practical issues of how you continue to make it happen when it's a long and a sustained uh, thing. And, and of course, the answer here isn't going to be simple. There's going to be a lot of conversations with the, with the 12 year old. There's going to be a lot of assessing values. And I think, John, the risk could be that parents framing up what they're framing as rights, but in fact, they're probably f- framing up uh, their fears and they're f- framing up uh, their desire to be good parents in amongst all the other things and obviously not wanting to lose a child. So I don't think that we have to have a good process in, in ethics and definitely on essential ethics, which is going to be a lot of weighing up. We don't have to have uh, the answer uh, today for that. We've had a fantastic discussion and uh, we're going to have to wind up in a moment, but we've thought a lot about rights and understanding them. We've sort of seen how that, in fact, they're important to give us some I think, moral backbone and courage to follow through. We've seen that, I think we're accepting that health care is a right and that children are special and we should be considering them as an intrinsic good and that deciding with them is part of their respect for the child and, and autonomy. Firstly, David, have we made a, a strong enough case that deciding with children is a health care right? I, I'm going to be the um, the devil's advocate and sceptic here and say, I think actually, if it's not simply a version of Article 12, I want to know exactly what it is, because there are good cases of, of uh, deciding together. And we do this regularly, uh, even in healthcare, I think about husbands and wives making a decision together about what's the best next step for one of them. Children is the odd case. What does it actually mean to decide with them rather than obviously for them? 
And is it any more than Article 12, just asking that uh, we provide suitable opportunities to hear them and weight their views and load those views to factor in? Or is it something more? Shared decision-making is the, is the big model now in, um, in healthcare practice uh, in terms of family. So what, what exactly does deciding with uh, or shared decision-making add to Article 12? That would be, that would be the question I, I want to put to both of you. Well, I do think uh, it is part of uh, shared decision-making, but, uh, John, it looks like Captain Skeptic is not going to write to the United Nations. Uh, there were 44, I think, sections of, uh, or 44 articles of the first section, and so I think David's not going to join us writing uh, Section 45. What about you, John? Do you think you'll help me write Section 45? 45 is is deciding with children a healthcare right. Yeah, you're safe with me here, um, John. So don't worry about that. I mean, I, I take David's points entirely, but 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 we we have to. So the committee on the rights of child's been pretty clear, but this as well. It sort of recognises there are times when we must substitute our views for those of children because they're very very young. It recognises the need for supported decision making, but it also recognises a point where that relationship has to come up, apart because children have independent interests to their parents as well. So we talk about rights in this context as being relational. It's a really important point as well. So often when you're talking with parents or clinicians, they think about rights, rights as being very individualistic. That's that classic libertarian model we see in America. In the international human rights space, it's a relational conception. So I enjoy my rights as a parent with my children, but there's also individual independent rights and interests, which at some point in time, the system says they have to be protected in ways that may in fact conflict with the interests or desires of their parents as well. And so to throw another sort of right into the debate, the convention also talks about the right to private life. And that right to private life is that source of physical integrity that we all have as adults, that source of ultimate autonomy. So you pair that with Article 12, Article 5, Article 3, you get a fairly robust idea that says at some point we must allow for a child to make decisions that may not align with what we as parents want to have because we have to respect, and that's the key word, respect that they themselves are determining what's in their own best interest. That, that's what, where that point is. I think it's important to recognise it's the process often as much as the actual outcome too. So we often get this wrong as parents, as clinicians, but if we're trying to follow the process, that's half of the battle with a human rights-based approach, and then the outcome in some respects becomes left at concern. If you're following that respectful process, then you're sort of halfway there, I think, in many respects. John, you still haven't come down hard on this one. So uh, is there enough there, though, in 3, 12, 3 5, yeah. and 12, or, or am I going to New York on my own? To the United Nations, to you know, to to harden this up a bit and and put deciding with children as a right. Yeah, David's not coming. Yeah, you won't get them to get. They won't. They won't write back to you. Sorry, but but <laughs> just because just because they're so busy in there. And well, it's a, it's a, I guess there's a point though. So, Is there, yeah. can, should we harden it up? Should we toughen it up? Uh, I Make it a right. At the local level, I think you can be. So this is the reality: is it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to amend. Mm human rights treaties globally. It's so hard to get any consensus Just at all. A, would you like to? Oh, it'd be nice to have it. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and and there's a lot of areas where we need clarification within the Convention on the Rights of the Child. So it's a very high-level abstracted document, which creates the discussion we're having right here today as well. But at the local level, this is where we can be thinking about how we create interpretations which we as a profession, as a practice of society, want to adopt in interpreting that particular standard. So it might not be international, John, but it might be local. Okay, so that's things to think about as well. So we can keep lobbying, but <laughs> it could be a long, it could Fantastic, be a long way. Fantastic, John. You're going to join us. <laughs> Deciding with children is a healthcare right in Australia. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us on Essential Ethics. It's been a fantastic discussion. It's a pleasure. David, thank you very much for joining us from Belfast. Not at all. And uh, I think we've got lots more to talk about, and so hopefully we can get you back on Essential Ethics soon. Thank you very much. Look forward to it. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with your colleagues. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was produced in the studio of the Royal Children's Hospital, Creative Studios. If you'd like to find out more about the activities of the Bioethics Centre, including our annual conference, look us up on www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics, be inspired. Mm-hmm.